to see this many out on a holiday, uh, that being, of course, Nadia Kaiser's sixth birthday. I don't know how many people have celebrated today in this vicinity, but a few have, thankfully. The Bosworth family, for one, had a lovely cake tonight, and earlier today there was an obliging citizen of Hollywood, Florida, who danced with my daughter for the, the, the wonderful strains of the beachcombers who were playing down there at Garfield Street at the beach. So if you're our friend on Facebook, you can see a video of that. But we've had a good day and a good time among you. But it's more with the Word of God we're concerned with tonight. Second Chronicles 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke in pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now that was a promising beginning to King Josiah's reign. But humanly speaking, we might look at him and we might be a bit surprised that he did so well from a young age. Because he had a lot of adversity in his background. Now, for those who were here on Sunday night, we thought about the prophet Zephaniah and what his prophecy said. Zephaniah was a contemporary of this King Josiah. And I believe, I can't prove it definitively, but I believe just reading between the lines of what Zephaniah says in his prophecy and what Second Chronicles and Second Kings have to say about the time of Josiah, I believe there's a direct correlation between Zephaniah's message and what Josiah does. Why was it that Josiah got interested in the things of the Lord from his young childhood? I mean, I have to tell you that it wasn't because of family tradition. His father Ammon was named after an Egyptian idol, after a false god. That's because his grandfather Manasseh was one of the wickedest kings ever to rule over Israel or Judah. And probably in Judah, he set the standard for low spiritual behavior. He did about everything he could for the majority of his 55-year reign or so, to take the people's hearts away from Jehovah, the true and living God, the Lord as we know Him, to take their hearts away from the Lord and to put their hearts on the worship of the sun, the moon, the stars, Baal, Ashtaroth, Molech, you name it. He sort of covered the board. It was like buffet spirituality. I'll take a little bit of this 
a little bit of that, a little bit of the other thing. And I'll mix it all together. And he was such a wicked king that God had him carried off into captivity and chastened. And there was one of the real remarkable conversions of history that this king steeped in pagan idolatry, steeped in wickedness and immorality, humbled himself in his chains and cried out to God to save him and to restore him. And wonder of wonders, God did. Because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the Bible tells us. That is the character of God. That when people humble themselves, even if they've led an awful life, even if decades of their life have been spent in what the hymn writer calls vanity and pride, nevertheless, when they turn in humility toward the Lord and say, Lord, you're absolutely right about me. I'm a lost, godless sinner. Please save me. God delights to do that. You say, well, how can He save someone so bad? Because He was looking forward in those days to when His Son would come and be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Dying on the cross. You see, even though this was five centuries before the death of our Lord on the cross, almost six centuries really, uh, even though there were so many hundreds of years yet to come before the Lord Jesus would come and die, it was a bit like the credit card principle. That you go to the mall, you know, and you see there the, the lovely New Balance sneakers you've been coveting. Or maybe it's the high-heeled shoes with all the fancy doodads on the side. Whatever it is. And you think about what you like, and I'll think about what I like. And then you take this item up to the counter, and you put your credit card down on the counter. Now, no money changes hands. No currency comes out of your wallet. You don't see any Benjamins or not even many George Washingtons or anything like that. You see a little bit of plastic put down on the counter, a credit card. And what that says is it's a promise that the bill is going to be paid at a later date. And if it isn't, there goes your credit rating, baby, but that's another sermon as they say. No, the bill's going to be paid at a later date. Same thing to these dear Old Testament folks. They looked ahead in faith to the provision God would make through the Messiah that He had promised. We look back in faith. We can say it's a matter of history that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into this world and died on the cross for sins. And whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your past, the Lord Jesus is able to save you from it. As 1 John 1 reminds us, the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Or as Ephesians 1, seven says, in whom we have redemption, the, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. So the Lord is able to save. And He saved Manasseh. And Manasseh spent the remaining years of his life trying to make restitution for the bad he had done. Trying to promote the true worship of God and take away the false. The unfortunate thing is, it's a lot easier to sow years of disobedience than it is now to turn and try to undo that. And many things that we've done in the past, though God may forgive them for us, He will not take away the consequences. And sad to say, Manasseh's son Ammon didn't share his faith. And when Manasseh died, Ammon continued on in idolatry. So along comes Josiah, and you might think, well, that's it then. Of course, 
This man's had a bad example in most of his grandfather's life. He's had a bad example in his father's life. There are a lot of people that were hangers-on at court, no doubt, who were agreeing with this idolatry. They were no help either. What chance does this boy have? Growing up in the wrong kind of environment, the wrong neighborhood, in the wrong family, around the wrong friends. Surely, he doesn't have a chance. And yet, that's just how our God is, you know. He reaches into the worst neighborhoods. He reaches into the most troubled families. And the most troubled families, by the way, aren't always in the worst neighborhoods. Sometimes the most troubled families are in the very nice neighborhoods. Sometimes they're very well ensconced in the suburbs. But be that as it may, God comes into scenes of dysfunction and where parents have disbelieved and said, I don't want any of that God talk. I don't want anything to do with the Lord. Nonetheless, God reserves the right to present the Gospel to a new generation and to see people saved. And through His servant Zephaniah, He presented a message that said, Judah, if you don't turn away from this idolatry, if you don't turn back to the Lord, if you don't put away the false gods, judgment's going to fall. And one person who heard that message loud and clear was Josiah, who from his youth, as you read here, verse 2 says, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, taking the text at face value, we're talking about a 16-year-old young man. At his, when he was 16 years old, that's the problem. You give him a shirt that looks like mine, he thinks he can preach. But uh, Micah and I are wearing matching shirts tonight, in case you haven't noticed. But in it, made by my mother-in-law, no less. So, huh, praise the Lord for a talented mother-in-law. But when he was 16 and still young, verse 3 tells us this, he began to seek the God of his father. So, even as a young man, he began to be interested in God, interested in the Lord. You don't have to wait till you're an older person. In fact, I would advise you that if you're interested in the Lord now, you seek the Lord now. You don't wait. Because the thing that can happen is over time, you can forget your interest in the Lord. Or you can gain distractions, things that will take your mind away from the Lord. Or fill your mind with other things. And it's wonderful that God doesn't put an age limit on coming to Him. Many of us have the testimony, I am one, I can say that when I was seven years old, I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I understood the Gospel. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I deserved hell. I knew that I was under the judgment of God. And that if I didn't have the blood of the Lord Jesus to cleanse me, the One who died on the cross for my sins and rose again, I knew I'd be lost. Conversely, I also knew that if I trusted Christ, I would have eternal life. He would come into my life and work through His Spirit. And He has done that. And I've never regretted making Him my Savior. So it's a wonderful thing when you can start young seeking the Lord. And the Lord preserves you from a lot of things. You know, I have some friends who have testimonies. I have a very close friend who God uses in a marvelous way in the Gospel. And my friend has the testimony that for 25 years, from the time he was a young teenager until well into his adult life, 
he was an alcoholic and an addict of crack cocaine. And he has a wonderful testimony because his testimony says that the Lord God saved him and broke these addictions and changed his life and turned him from a violent man into a man who loves people and wants to share the Gospel. But you know, my friend would be the first to tell you he has scars. He has a lot of things wrong with him, with his body, from the way he lived before he knew God. And a lot of memories, not just physical things, but memories of a lot of things that he was involved with and things that he did and people he hurt that pain him, even though he's forgiven of it, even though he's walking with the Lord today, even though it's covered by the blood as far as God is concerned, my friend still knows, I lived a life that was wasted. How much better to avoid that? You know, the better testimony in one sense. There's no wrong time to get saved, so don't misunderstand me. Whatever age you are, if you've never trusted Christ, now's a good time. But how much better it is to come when you're young, like Josiah did, and be preserved from all of the pain and immorality that his father and grandfather were immersed in. And that's exactly what we see. He began to seek the God of his father, David. And it translated itself into action. You see what he did in verses 3 and following? It talks about him taking these high places, these places where they worship false gods, and he took the wooden images of those gods and the carved images and the molded images, and they broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars and so forth. He began breaking up the places that were devoted to idolatry. And he began making it so that they couldn't be worshipped any longer, not only in his land, but I love how it says here in verse 6, that he did it also in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and Naphtali. So he goes up into the territory that had been part of the northern kingdom. Except at this point in history, the northern kingdom has been carried off into the Assyrian captivity. So he goes up, and whoever's left up there, he goes up and he's getting rid of their false gods, getting rid of their false altars. Wherever he could go to put a stop to this error, to this worship of false gods, he did it. Now in verse 8 it goes on to say, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land in the temple, he's now in his mid-twenties, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, and Masaiah the governor of the city, and Joah the son of Joaz the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Now when someone starts to seek the Lord, and they get enamored with the Lord, they get taken up with who the Lord is, it isn't long till they gain an interest in the Lord's house. You know, God has always had a house. Uh, we can read, going back to the time of the patriarchs, that Jacob talked about Bethel being the house of God. That's what the very name of the place means. And the house of God has been in different locations at different times in history. It was in the tabernacle. We can read about that, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, which refers to it as a temple there. Or later, we think about the temple that Solomon built, that God called his house. Or still later, the place that, even though it was corrupted in the time of our Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus went into Herod's temple, and he still, quoting the Scripture, referred to it as my Father's house. 
So God has had His house through the ages. Well, where is His house today? You say, well, surely this is God's house. Well, I can understand why you think that. But honestly, this is just a chapel building. Okay? But God's house is here. Don't get me wrong. Because the Bible says that today, God's house isn't a physical building of brick and stone or wood. It's a house made up of people. That 1 Peter 2 says if you're a believer, you become a living stone in the temple that God is building. What Ephesians 2, I think it's verse 19, calls a habitation of God in the Spirit. So, when the church of God comes together, not just this local church, but we're just seeing a little expression of the house of God here, but everywhere where people are gathering unto the Lord Jesus, true believers in Him, the Lord Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in My name, I'm in the midst. There is houses. That's a wonderful thing to get excited about the house of God. Because it's something that's extremely important to God. Because it speaks to His glory. Now, it's lovely, and if we had more time, we could think about these various individuals that were working with Josiah. Because it wasn't just that Josiah caught fire for the Lord, that Josiah got excited about the Lord and His things. But there were others around him that Josiah included. And when you read about great times in history when God's Spirit has moved to what we often call revivals, it's never just one man. It's true, there might be certain individuals that stand out. So you can think about the 1700s, and by far the two greatest gospel preachers of that century were George Whitfield and John Wesley. And yet when you go back and you read the histories, you find out those men had lots and lots of people working with them, also spreading the gospel. And other people like Hal Harris, who was maybe seeing more converted in Wales than Wesley saw converted in England. Or people like William Grimshaw in the north of England, whose stories are thrilling to read about. God tends to revive people in groups. It's not a one-man thing. It's not about one gifted individual, but it's about God raising up people who then work with other like-minded people for the glory of the Lord. And they began renovating the house of the Lord. Now you might say, why was that needed? Well, verse 10 describes it this way. They said, who worked, this is the last part of verse 10, who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. Now you repair something that is broken, and you restore something that has been damaged or something that has been corrupted. They gave it to the craftsmen and builders to buy hewn stone and timber and so forth. And as you read along, you find out they had to carry out all kinds of garbage. It's shocking. Why would you find garbage in the house of God? Well, because Ammon, Josiah's father, and Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, had been bringing in all kinds of stuff, even into the house of God, that wasn't scriptural, and stuff that was made to worship false gods. So they had to go in there and pull this stuff out and toss it. But here's the remarkable thing they found when they were doing this cleanup job. Look at verse 14. Now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. 
This is a part of the Bible. Back in those days, the Bible was written on scrolls. It wasn't all together in one bound book, usually, like we have today. That came later, what we call the Codex, which developed into the book. And now it's on the smartphone. So, you know, technology marches on. But in those days, the Word of God was on scrolls. Now, it is debated among biblical historians and scholars whether this was all of the books of Moses, was this Genesis through Deuteronomy, as we'd call it, or was it just Deuteronomy? That's the question. What was it that he found? We don't know for sure whether it was five books of the Bible or one book of the Bible, but for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. The key thing is here, they found the Word of God. Now, notice the terminology. It says here that they found the book of the law of the Lord. Now, if after the meeting tonight I said to you, good news, I found my keys, what would you assume? You'd say, well, Keith must have lost his keys. And that can be serious, you know. He won't be able to unlock his car. He won't be able to get his stuff. I mean, it could be very serious. You would assume if I say I found my keys that I had lost them. Well, here they say, we found the book of the law of the Lord. What does that tell you about the book of the law of the Lord? It had been lost. And where was it lost, pray tell? It was lost in the house of God. Now, that rather astonishes me. You would think that people coming to the house of God would be so interested in the Lord that they'd want to guard God's Word. That they'd want to hold on to this book firmly. But you know what? Even the history of the church in our age has shown that often it is so perilously easy for the church to lose God's Word. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, in past centuries, it's been that people inside the church, not true believers, but people have come into the church, what Paul would describe as grievous wolves in Acts 20, and they've said, this isn't really the Word of God. Or not all of it's the Word of God. And they've eroded people's confidence in the Word of God. And so, in parts of the world over the last few centuries, we've seen churches go from gospel preaching, living, excited about the Lord, fellowships, to being absolutely dead. Not able to transform anybody. There's another way, though that people today tend to go. Usually people today, at least in evangelical circles, circles that claim to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they usually don't say we don't believe in the Bible. But here's what they do. They give you very little of the Bible. Just a little bit of a flavor of the Bible. And everything else becomes very important. Business models become important. How do we get people in? How do we entertain people? How do we keep people coming? Will a coffee bar in the building do it? You got it. We got a coffee bar. Better music? You got it. We'll do better music. Impressive light shows? You got it. We'll do it. Movies? We'll bring in movies, whatever, and we'll kind of Christianize them. You know, we'll baptize Frozen, maybe. Kind of hard to baptize Frozen. A little bit of a physics problem there, but I'll leave it to the scientific minds to figure out how to do that. You see how it can be, can't you? That suddenly, as in one place I know, people were told, for the next so many weeks, we're going to be doing the purpose-driven church so you don't have to bring your Bible. And 
when the church starts doing things like that, it's extremely dangerous, isn't it? And it's very easy to lose the Word of God. Because if they held on to the Word of God, if they had been believing and practicing what the law of the Lord said, they never would have left the garbage come into the house of God, would they? They never would have permitted an incense altar or an image of another God to come into the house of God. But once you lose this book, anything's possible. And that's why we have so-called Christian churches today blessing homosexual unions. That's why we have them approving of anything and anything, everything and anything that goes on in the world. It's a terrible thing to lose the Word of God. So they carried this book to the king. They read it before him. To make a long story short, the king was greatly grieved because spiritual, God-seeking man that Josiah was, he understood we're not doing it the way God's Word says to do it. Even though I've made some reforms, even though we've gotten rid of a lot of garbage, a lot of junk, we haven't really gone back and done it the way the Lord wants to do it. And so, wrath is upon us. Because the law of the Lord said to them in no uncertain terms, in the book of Deuteronomy 28, for example, that if you followed the Lord's teaching, there'd be blessing. But if you disregarded it or disobeyed it, there'd be cursing. So he sends some of his trusted emissaries to find out what the Lord had to say to them. Now that they knew they were in the wrong, they want to come back to the Word. How do we get right with God? They reach out to one of the Lord's servants. In this case, a lady named Huldah the prophetess. Now at this, oftentimes, uh, people get very excited. Oh, look at this. There's hold of the prophetess. You see, women can speak for the Lord too. Well, amen. And I hope they do. They have in every age. Godly women have been tremendously used of the Lord in every dispensation, right down to the current time. But I find it interesting that when we have somebody like hold of the prophetess arise, it's interesting to see the technique that happens here. It's true the Lord speaks through her, but where? Does she come up to the temple and give a sermon? No. They go to her neighborhood, the second quarter. It's a neighborhood that Zephaniah mentioned in chapter 1 of his book when he talked about judgment coming there. It's a very posh neighborhood. Uh, the Miami Lakes. Or is Miami Lakes a nice neighborhood? Uh, okay, uh, the Miami Lakes, you know, of Jerusalem. All right, good. See, I don't know much about the geography or the real estate around here, so I grab any little thing I can. But they went over to her house, and she gave them the word of the Lord. Here was a sister faithfully speaking in the power of the Spirit of God, but the Lord had her doing this privately. Not coming up to usurp the priesthood that God had established, or to set aside, for that matter, the authority of the king. But God spoke through Holden nevertheless. Now I believe that it's a sign of the weakness of the nation in general that there weren't any guys around to speak. And Kudos to Huldah for being faithful. Praise the Lord for faithful sisters. I often run into a lot more of those than faithful brothers. Sometimes the brothers are MIA. I'm sad to say it. Sometimes they're not taking their responsibility in the Word seriously or their responsibility in the assembly seriously. Sometimes they're too immersed in their careers or nowadays too immersed in their hobbies. It's a sad thing. But praise God for dear faithful sisters 
whose hearts yearn for the glory of the Lord. And when they have occasion in the proper place, they speak for the Lord. In the church, women are to be silent. Women aren't to teach, according to 1 Timothy 2, in the church. Or to usurp authority over a man. Outside of the church, in everyday life, in the people they meet, as they go to work, or in the home, or wherever they are, they're free to speak for the Lord unlimitedly. And it's amazing, some of the dear sisters I know that are tremendous witnesses, very, very good at bringing people to Christ. Or some that are very good at giving a word of encouragement to the downtrodden. Not publicly, not for glory, and certainly not to set aside the order God has established, but nonetheless faithful. So it's interesting to see how God does this. Now, God basically says through Huldah, and we're almost out of time, so I'm going quickly here. That's why I'm paraphrasing so much. God essentially says, Josiah, because you've humbled yourself, I'm not going to bring the judgment in your time. Now, God is so faithful that way. Whenever people humble themselves, when they get down before the Lord and say, Lord, it's your word, and we're not going to argue about it, and we're not going to find a loophole around it, we're going to bow to it. We're going to say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you want. The Lord honors that kind of faith. We look around we say, man, the world's getting darker. It's ripe for judgment. God has told us that His wrath is coming. Yes, but if we humbled ourselves and poured out our hearts before God, might not God revive us again? Might not God use us again to do wonderful things before the judgment comes? Because this revival that happened under Josiah happens just one generation before the judgment falls. And after his death, things go downhill pretty quickly. It's a matter of two decades after his death that they're in full-blown captivity. So, it shows us that even at the very end of their independent history before the captivity, God was still willing to bless and still willing to revive. Now, it's interesting, as you look at chapter 35, and we have no time to do so tonight, But as we look at chapter 35, they get back to the Passover of the Lord. That when you get interested in the Lord, and when you get interested in His house, you're going to be interested in worshiping the Lord. You're going to be interested in offering up sacrifices for the Lord. And there's wonderful statements made in there. How the king not only offers sacrifices for himself, but he gives animals to other people, to the so-called lay people. There really were lay people in this time. There's no such thing in the New Testament. Every believer is a priest. But in that time, there were lay people. And he gives the lay people animals to offer to the Lord. And everybody gets to participate in worshiping the Lord. There's this tremendous national celebration of the Lord. And chapter 35 tells us they hadn't celebrated this Passover a Passover like this, since the days of Samuel. Now that's astonishing. (laughs) That means that it had been over half a millennium, more than 500 years, since they had celebrated the Passover exactly the way God wanted it. You say, well, what about his great-grandfather Hezekiah? Doesn't the Bible say in his revival they brought about the Passover? Yes, but it wasn't perfect. You know, everything came together, but not quite right. They had to do it in the second month, which God permitted under His law. 
but it wasn't ideal. You come to Josiah, and right at the end of Judah's independent history, here's an example of people that can come together and worship and remember the Lord in the way that pleases Him. Can we have Lord's suppers like they had in the early church? Could we come together led by the Holy Spirit of God so full of Christ that it would suffuse this place, that it would fill our fellowships, that it would spill over into our everyday life and transform the way we live and bring others to the living God? Yes, we can. But it's going to take the same things that Josiah did. We're going to have to be purposeful. We're going to have to seek the Lord. We're going to have to get back to God's Word, just like Josiah and his friends did. And we're going to have to then go ahead and do what the Word says. First, to humble ourselves and confess where we've sinned and where we've got it wrong and do it the way the Word wants it to be done. Now, there's a lot of applications that could be made out of that. But those are the principles. So I leave it to you to prayerfully consider, God, what's that mean for Boulevard? What's that mean for my family? What's that mean for me as an individual believer? How do I need to plug that in to my life? And when you do, you find God's faithful. It's never that He is reluctant to bless. He's always willing. He's always ready. The What tarries? Why revival tarries? To answer Ravenhill's rhetorical question of the title of his book, is never because God doesn't want to pour out blessing. It's always because the lethargy is on our side. So let us, brothers and sisters, turn to the Lord and seek Him with all our hearts. May God help us to do so. Father, we're thankful tonight for this example from Thy Word that shows us even in times that were so difficult, in a young man who came from such a challenged background, yet God can work and do mighty things by His grace. And Father, we have no doubt that we have the same God today. Thou canst work. Father, we know we are the limiting factor. We know Thy ability to work is often hindered by our unbelief, by our apathy, by our recalcitrance and sometimes stubbornness. Father, we pray that we'd humble ourselves and that we'd be an obedient people. Not just in this assembly, Father. Not just in New Testament assemblies that we know about, but throughout Thy church we would pray for a revival that wherever people love the Lord Jesus and believe in the Word of God, that they would get back to resting on Him and His Word alone. And that we would see the Spirit of God do great things in our times. Not the sham revival, not the false excitement that is so prevalent today, but real, powerful, life-changing working of God. This is what we pray for. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name, amen.